we started this last week, this four-week series that we're doing on biblical servant leadership. And we talked last week about the call of God and how we are, are called by him to be shepherds, to be those that are looking after, to be those that individually are speaking his name and bringing others uh, to God through Jesus. And we talked about some things in leadership. And um, I want to give you a couple of things that are from the time of Paul, from the time of Jesus, that talk about the, the kind of character a person needs to be in order to lead. Here is one of those quotes. He must be married. He must be without pride. He must be temperate. What does that mean, temperate? In control of his emotions. Yes, doesn't lie off the handle. And must combine prudence of mind with excellence of outward behavior. Sound like the kind of person who you would want to be in a leading position? Here's another one. He must be prudent, self-controlled, sober, frugal, enduring in toil. Sorry, I couldn't read that from here. My, my eyes aren't as young as I feel. Enduring in toil, intelligent, without a love of money, neither young nor old, if possible, the father of a family, able to speak competently and of good reputation. Sound like the kind of person that you would want as a leader? Yeah, two very good things. We also have something, you know, we, we talk about Paul. I want you look at that bulletin insert you've got there. You've got a short side, which is actually the back, and you've got the longer side, which is actually the front. Um, what I've done is I've taken the three places in Scripture that we normally go to when we start talking about spiritual leadership. We talk about leadership within the body of Christ. Um, that is First uh, Timothy 3, Titus 1, and First Peter 5. Those three different passages. Now, I'm just going to explain this to you a little bit. Uh, you will note that there are some letters that look like they're making up words on each line over on the left side. That is what we call a transliteration. In other words, it's the English sound, the English letters that would give you the sounds of a different language. In this case, Greek. Okay? I am not here to uh, baffle you with my brilliance. As most of y'all know, the only thing brilliant on me is the top of my head when the lights are shining on it. I put that there for a reason. Among other things, I want you to see the words that are used in each one of these passages. You'll note there's a matrix of those passages, and the verse where that particular word is used is off to the side. You'll notice there's a couple of lines that are bold. Those are the ones where the exact same word is in two different places. So I want you to see that, um, and oh yeah, and there's a translation of the words uh, from the NIV 84. You guys know I'm kind of sort of steeped in that. Uh, so, but, but, but that's where that reference is to give you an English translation of what those words are. 
but that's, that's what's there. And I just want you to be able to look at that and to see the words that Paul used when he wrote to Timothy and when he wrote to Titus and Peter used when he was writing to his audience. We will come back to this in a moment. But I want you to have that because I want you to have it as a reference. Now, I did give this out a couple of years ago. Uh, if you happen to be here when we were talking about this a couple of years ago. Um, but if you have lost yours, you now have one. And if you will note, if you look at the bottom, you see that I actually spent my time and effort to put this together back in 2008. Okay? So I'm not picking on you. I have used this over and over again because it's a really good tool. So that is for you for a long time, but we'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. There are times when we will look and we will... Uh, especially the First Timothy 3 passage, we look at that and we call, call it a qualification list. Um, does anybody know the difference between a qualification and characteristics? Yeah, here, here's the biggest difference. A qualification is an absolute. Okay? And the thing is, is if you meet the qualification, you get whatever you're being qualified for, right? Character has to do with heart, but qualification has to do with meeting a requirement, okay? I'll tell you where qualification comes up for virtually all of us, and that's right here, when you have to go and get a driver's license, when you get a driver's license, you have to qualify by whether or not you can see, and not just that you can see, but you have to see at least a certain level with corrective lenses, okay, for those of us that are half blind. But if we can't meet that, that level, which I think is what, 2040? If we can't meet that level, you don't get a driver's license because you are not qualified. Not only that, there's an age requirement. Yes? Um, I'm not really sure where it is in Michigan. I'm sure it's very close to the same as is in other states that I've been in where you're able to start learning to drive at 15, 15 and a half, that you will are eligible for a driver's license uh, at 16, 16 plus a couple of months or whatever. But in order to do that, you have to what? You have to pass a class. Not only that, you have to pass a written test. If you fail that test, do you get the driver's license? Not until you can pass that test, right? Okay. You see what I'm saying here? There are absolutes. And in order to get a driver's license, you have to pass a class, have a skills test, have an eye test in order to be qualified. It is an absolute. Absolutes do not change. But here's a problem. If Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, is setting up an absolute for who can be a recognized shepherd within the body of Christ... Why does he use different words when he's writing to Titus? Oh, and by the way, 
those two letters were, work, were written at virtually the same time. Definitely in the same time frame. Why does he use different words writing to Titus than he does Timothy if he meant for this to be an absolute? And let me ask you another question. Does Paul outrank Peter? Okay, that's a question for a different day. I get it. (laughs) But Peter was what? Peter was the one given the keys. He was the one who was the leader to begin with, yes? And we see early on that James becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. But Peter has a special place. Why is it when Peter is talking about leadership within the body of Christ, he uses completely different words than Paul used. See, that's why I transliterated those words for you, because I want you to see they are different words. They may be similar, but they're different. And if it's an absolute, you either meet that or you don't. So if it's an absolute, does Titus take over and Timothy not? Or does Peter take over and Paul not? I mean, let's come, let's come on. If we're going to use that word, let's use it correctly. I think they're actually aiming at something different. When you really stop to think about it logically, there are different words that are used. When Paul is writing Timothy, then he's writing Titus, that it was virtually at the same time. And what Peter uses for his audience because they were never meant to be an absolute. There are five good words in the Greek language that mean qualification. There are five of them. Paul had them available. They are used within the New Testament. There are five good words available, and Paul uh, didn't use any of them. Oh, I take that back. Paul did use a couple of them in 2 Corinthians and in 2 Timothy and in Ephesians. But Paul did not use them in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus 1. If Paul meant for it to be a qualification, why didn't he say that? These character trait lists uh, were actually something that was very common. And in fact, I I showed you two, right, when we started off this talk today. I showed you these two. Yes? Well, this first one, the one on the top, is a trait list by Diogenes Laertes, a philosopher. And it is a list of the traits that he would look for in an ideal Stoic philosopher. Oh, and the second one. The second one is from Ona Sander, a historian. And it's his list of character traits of an ideal Roman general. What do those two lists have in common? Several things, yeah? In fact, they sound an awful lot like what Paul said. But these two lists are pagan. 
In other words, you can think of them as secular. And yet, they are remarkably similar to Paul's list. Now, how is that possible? I think it's fairly simple. The one who walking through Athens got to a point where he could speak to the Athenians who said, you know, I have been around and I have looked and I can see that you are a people that are religious. I see that because I see the statues of your gods all around this city. And yet I see this statue of an unknown God. Now what you worship in ignorance, let me tell you who that one God is. What did he do? He started with something that they understood, yes? That man also, at the same time, wrote, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save how many? Some, yes? I have become all things to all men. What's he saying? I use whatever avenue is available to advance Christ in his kingdom. By the way, that's 1 Corinthians 9.22. That man, I believe, is using a culturally relevant device to talk about the maturity level that's needed for an ideal candidate for recognized servant leadership within the body of Christ. You think about it today. Um, You have a job that needs to be filled. You work for a company. They have a job that needs to be filled. What do they do? They say, we have a job. This is what the job is. What do we call that? A job description. Yes. And then they say, we need to find somebody who can do this. And what do they come up with? Their ideal of an ideal candidate. Right? For somebody to do this job, we're looking for these traits. Now, when you do that, what are you looking for? The individual who best fits that list of characteristics that you're looking for. You may find somebody that fits all of them, but you're looking for the one who fits the most of them because you're looking for a particular character. Now, there may be a couple of those things that are absolutes. I'm not saying they're not. But it's not a qualification. It is who is my ideal candidate. I believe this is what is going on. Because you see, the ideal candidate on the island of uh, Crete, where Titus was, and he was trying to plant a new church, might be a totally different, or at least slightly different, candidate than where Peter was. I mean, where where Timothy was. Where Timothy was working in, in Ephesus, where there was already an established church, and what was the main issue at hand? There was heresy happening among the leadership. And there was a different character that was needed. There was a different need 
or character traits of the ideal candidate in those two places. And if you bring in Peter into that, where Peter is writing and the audience he's writing to, it's a totally different context. Are they similar lists? Yes or yes? Yes. Why? Because there's a similar characteristic that we are looking for. Yes? I'm just telling you the word qualification is the wrong word. You're going to see that as we move forward. Jim Estep told you he was a dean of students at um, Lincoln Christian Seminary. He's part of the E2 Essential elders, we're going to be using some of that material. As he is writing, Jim Step comes to this conclusion as he's talking about this situation and who we're looking for for recognized servant leadership. And he comes to the conclusion that the essential, irreducible factor in each one of these character lists when you're looking at all of them, Timothy, Titus, and Peter, is... That person needs to be blameless. Make sense? That person needs to be blameless before God. Their life, their actions, their heart, their motivation must be in line with Christ's teaching. It is not a call to the perfect. I've already told you, some of you have already figured it out. I've been here long enough. I am not perfect. What I am is forgiven. And what I am is striving to be as Christ-like as I can be. Yes? It's not a call to the perfect. It's a call to the forgiven. Servant leaders must know and practice lordship, that Christ is lord of their life, that he is the master, and they are the slave. They are the servant. And whatever the master does, he has the right to tell the slave what to do. We don't like to talk about it that way, but scripture does. Those that are in his family are subservient to the one who is Lord of their life. Amen? Okay. We talk about that a good bit. Servant leaders must also be blameless before others. How do we know if this is the case? Well, there needs to be a vetting period. That's how. We need to have a point in time where we look at and examine and see what that is. And vetting does take time. It takes attention. It takes prayer. It takes discernment. You're thinking about putting someone up for recognized servant leadership here in a couple weeks? How long have you known them? Where have you seen them be blameless when they could have given in? Or one very big or a couple of overlooked aspects, have you ever met anybody where they work? What do they think of him? Is he respected at work? Is he respected in his neighborhood? Have you talked to his neighbors? Does he live a crucified life from Monday through Friday? Servant leaders must also be blameless before family. In other words, what's his character at home? Who should know that the best? Have you talked with his family? 
Have you watched his children? Do they respect his authority? What did the children have to say about him? What does his wife have to say about him? Another overlooked aspect of this is the character of the spouse. Paul in 1 Timothy 3.11 says she must be one who was worthy of respect, even-tempered, trustworthy. And And there's that phrase, not a malicious talker. Can I put that in modern English? She can't be a gossip. You may have a man who is a good moral character, who is a good leader, who you might go to for spiritual help, for rightly dividing the word of God, but if his wife cannot keep confidence, don't put that man in a position of leadership. Because I tell you, Gossip kills the church. Oh, and by the way, ladies, unless you think I'm picking on you, gentlemen, gossip kills the church. This isn't this lesson. But if you've got a problem with somebody, don't talk to anybody who can't solve that issue. You have a problem with somebody, go to that individual and humbly tell them you don't understand and you want to find out, you want to find, you know, you might find out that you're the one that's wrong. You may find out you're the one that's misunderstanding. You may also find out that in that soft correction, you gain a brother or you gain a sister. But if you're talking about an issue with anyone other than someone who has the ability to solve that issue, you may be gossiping. So all of us need to be aware of that. How does the man handle his finances at home? You know, that could very well be the the implication of that, that phrase, manages his own family or manages his household well. Remember what Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things, then I will put you in charge of great things. You remember that? If a potential servant leader does not handle his own responsibilities well at home, can we expect that they will be any different in handling the affairs of the church? 1 Timothy 3, 2. Paul writes, now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, probably, oh, well, you know, it goes on there. But I want to stop there. I mean, y'all can read that. Um, husband of, in the NIV puts but one wife. We'll talk about that in just a second. Husband of one wife. Um, this is probably the most misunderstood phrase in this whole list. Uh, it comes down to a Greek phrase that says one woman man is the actual phrase, a one-woman man. Uh, My favorite Greek professor has said for years and years and years that is pointing to a kind of person, that it's a one-woman kind of man. It's a characteristic. Um, It points to 
character. And this phrase, one woman man, has been interpreted five different ways, six. And the thing is, is if you're looking at this as a qualification, you can't pick one and then with one person and then pick a different translation or a different interpretation for somebody else because if it's a qualification, it's one thing, right? Let's go through that very quickly. We're not going to take a whole lot of time on this, but let's go through it. One way that one woman man or husband of but one wife is interpreted is that he must be married, which would exclude people who are single. And if you think about it, that would force a man whose wife died, he's now a widower, that would force him to have to step down because he's no longer qualified. If they have to be married, he's not married anymore. By the way, there's a big problem with this. Uh, the guy who wrote this wasn't married. And let's remember that we not only put Paul on the level of an elder, we put him on the level of an apostle. Yes? So if that were the answer, it would exclude Paul. Um, and, and taking one of those other ones in there, that, that, that's the second one that comes up. He must be married with children. He has to have not one child, but he must have more than one child. And yes, there have been times when people have looked at this and said, he can't be an elder. They've only got one child. Well, that excludes couples that are barren, not of any fault of their own, but that's you want to call it biology or you want to call it God? And it bars those with a one-child family. But the problem with that interpretation goes back to what I said a second ago. That will exclude the one who wrote this. Other way, third one, only married one time, which would exclude widowers if they remarry. If you stop to think about it. The problem is that actually goes against God's, yeah, well, it goes against Hebrew tradition. Um, there is no known exclusion against remarriage that exists in Judaism. In fact, we know Paul encourages remarriage. Why? To avoid sin. Yes? 1 Corinthians 7, 9, if you want a reference. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Jesus does not condemn remarriage. Now, in Matthew 19, Jesus absolutely does condemn the practice of divorcing one in order to marry another. Now, if you think about that, in those situations, there's a very good chance that sin is already likely happening. Nowhere else in Scripture is remarriage ever put into a negative light. Uh, one more. He must be married to only one at a time. Okay, so you have a widower. His wife dies. He remarries. He's okay, but he can only have one wife at a time. So what is that going against? Polygamy. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, I will tell you, this is the historical um, translation or interpretation of this by the leaders of our movement, Alexander Campbell specifically. Uh, I think this is why the NIV 84 says the husband of but one wife. I think it's bringing in that idea uh, of blocking polygamy. Um, The problem with that, if you are trying to understand what Paul, the original writer, is writing to his audience, to Timothy, who's going to Ephesus to work, right? What Paul was trying to say to Timothy and what Timothy would have understood, the big problem with that interpretation is that polygamy was outlawed under Roman rule. It was not even an issue in Paul's time. Timothy would probably have never come to that conclusion that he was saying, that Paul was saying that. Now, immorality was a big issue, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this one particular translation, uh, one interpretation has some problems. Forget also that that would eliminate Father Abraham. That would eliminate Jacob. That would eliminate David. That would eliminate Solomon and some others. All of those would have been excluded from leadership. Now, that being said, we know some of the, we know some of the ancients were polygamists. And if you read your Bible, you will see that in every single case, it messed up their family. It's wrong. I'm just saying, I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. I don't believe that's where he is. More than likely, what's happening with this, especially in the time when our movement formed in the the, uh, early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, is, is a cultural interpretation. You think about it. Our movement is moving out to the wild west frontier of Kentucky and Illinois. <laughs> as things are moving westward, and as, as our movement is moving westward, what other faith group is moving westward? The Mormons, yes. And the Mormons' history is absolutely polygamy, yes? Um, They deny that. It's facts. All you have to do is go back and read history. It's there, okay? My guess is the reason why Campbell latched on to that is because he saw that as the biggest threat to the family in his day. There's another cultural interpretation, which no doubt you've heard has been what this means is that the man can't be divorced. Again, back to Paul. If this is what Paul meant, why didn't he just say it? There are two perfectly good words for divorce in the Greek language. And uh, Jesus used both of them in Matthew 19 that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So they're readily available to Paul. Why didn't he say that if that's what he meant? If he was trying to make a qualification list, why didn't he say that? 
This one, divorce, no doubt you have heard, and I imagine you probably have practiced it here. This has been the interpretation from the past 80, 90, almost 100 years. Do you know why? Because divorce has been the single biggest threat to the family unit in our day and time. Now that's changing, is it not? It's changing to a point where people aren't getting married. And a lot of the ills that are in our societies is because of the breakdown of the family that didn't just begin now. This has been going on for a good 50, 60, almost 70 years. You with me? Okay. Let me ask you this. Who files the majority of the divorces within our society today? Who is it? Yeah, you don't even have to look at statistics. You know right away it's women, right? Right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying for a fact, women file the vast majority of divorces in our country. Warranted or not, no fault, fault. It's women. Here's a problem. Back in Paul's day, the vast majority of divorces were filed by men. In fact, women could only divorce a man under a very, very narrow circumstances within Jewish society. Um, He ravished a virgin. What would we say today? Ravished a virgin. What would we say? He raped a young woman, right? Um, He engaged in a disgusting trade. A trade that would make her, because of her association with him, unclean and unable to go to the synagogue. Uh, A tanner, perhaps. So we got any tanners that were in the old in the New Testament? Uh, Peter and Paul both, I think, were tanners at one point, weren't they? Yeah, interesting. Um, or that he contracted a disease similar to leprosy. He contracted a disease that he couldn't even be in society and he was being forced out. And for her to be able to divorce under those three issues, She had to convince a man, a priest, to actually file the divorce for her. You know what it took for a man to divorce a woman? Took off a shoe in a public place and said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it's done. What am I telling you? All of the power was in the man's position in society. Okay. What's the difference from that till today? If a woman, right, wrong, indifferent, wants out of a marriage, all she has to do is file the paperwork and it'll be done. 
There is nothing that the man can do to stay in that marriage. And it may be that he's not the one who stepped out. Maybe he has been a man of character and his wife left him. Do you see how that can't be what Paul was talking about? Because Paul would have never, ever anticipated that a man could be the victim of divorce? Now hear me clearly. I am not saying that divorce doesn't matter. Okay? When it comes to looking at people for recognized uh, servant leadership. What I'm saying is, is it's not a carte blanche, throw it away. Every situation's got to be looked at individually. And maybe the divorce is an issue. Maybe it's not. Okay, which one of these things is right? Because if it's a qualification, it can only be one of them. Oh, and by the way, lots of times I've seen people flip-flop on what their interpretation is and still call this a, quali- uh, a qualification because of some reason they dislike what somebody has baggage in their past that may actually be under the blood and been 25 years ago, and that man's not the same man as he was back when. Which one is it? Because you can only choose one because... They cancel out each other when you really start looking at it. It can't be two of them. It can't be all five. Lynn Anderson put into words something that I had thought before I was exposed to his book, but I think he puts it so very, very clearly in his book, They Smell Like Sheep. He says, since this is a character list, you're looking at the kind of man. What all of these things point to is, does the man keep covenant? Does he keep covenant? Now you think about it. The marriage covenant is the highest covenant that we engage in outside of our covenant with God through Christ. Amen? And it needs to be treated and regarded as such. It involves a spiritual union, the highest, most intimate covenant that we make with someone else in this world. And it involves fidelity to the man himself. What is it Jesus says when when, when we sin sexually? We what? We bring that into our own body, right? Consider this. If a man and woman honor their marriage vows, there will absolutely be no infidelity. There will be no polygamy. There'll be no divorce. Children will grow up in a home where love is modeled and given to them. The wife will honor her husband and he will cherish his wife and give his life for his bride as Christ gave his life for the church. His children will grow up to respect their parents. 
and they will keep the family strong and their children will benefit from that. I got to be careful here. I'm going to get into a subject of family relations, which is a whole different sermon. Don't want to do that. But, but it comes down to that. Does he keep covenant? And the thing about it is, you pick any one of those other five interpretations, we're setting the bar here. We're setting the bar above all of those five. Does he keep covenant? Was he divorced in the past? Maybe his wife ran out on him. Maybe 25 years ago before he was a Christian. He was involved in things he shouldn't have been, but he's been walking with the Lord for a number of years. He's the kind of person that you would go to for spiritual counsel. You see who he is, and he is not that man anymore. 1 Corinthians 6, you want to go back and read. Paul says that's what you were, but that's not what you are because of the blood of Christ. Yes? Who is he today? Maybe he's remarried. Is he keeping in covenant with his wife that he has right now? See what I'm saying here? Okay. I don't expect you to always agree with me. I just expect you to take what I tell you and to look at it and massage it yourself and test it for truth. Okay? A man who keeps covenant with his wife and keeps covenant with God is a man who is going to be blameless. And he's going to be blameless with himself. We're going to add that to that list of blameless, blamelessness, right? Perhaps this is the hardest of them all for we all know our own shortcomings. We alone know whether our thoughts are pure and which temptations we entertain. Do you see, friends, our recognized servant leaders must have the same high personal standards that they profess in front of people in those private moments when they are, I used to say alone, but when God is the only one watching And it's a tall order. It's one of the main reasons why we we have to have a plurality of elders where we need more than one. Because no one elder is going to possess blamelessness perfectly all the time. And yet in a plurality of elders, blamelessness becomes more easily realized as they complement each other and complete each other and correct and encourage each other through mutual accountability. James tells us in James 3.1, those who presume to be teachers are going to be judged, he says, more strictly, right? He's not condoning that as much as he is recognizing it, yes? Because you do hold your leaders accountable probably more than you do yourself at times. He is recognizing this idea that our recognized servant leaders need to be blameless because the world 
is watching. Father God, we thank you for this time and we thank you for Peter and for Paul and for good counsel. And we thank you, Father, for those moments when we have to check ourselves. And we thank you, Father, that through the Son, you continue to give grace to all. As we come to this time of invitation, we come to this time of, uh, of action. We pray, Father, that you will move our hearts, that we will seek your face. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.